listening to the Echo Community Church Podcast. We have a passion for being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we hope this podcast inspires you to take another step. Let's join our pastor for today's teaching from the Bible. So good to see each and every one of you this morning. Good morning. Welcome to Echo Community Church. Welcome to our online family. We're glad you are logging in and spending this morning with us. I think, do I see Hob? Or no, it's Carrie today. All right. Carrie is our moderator who is online with you and will be keeping you up to speed. And so you can say good morning to her if you haven't already. And to those of you that are here in person, today's a great day because for the first time since we've been in this building, eKids is going on over there in the other wing. And so we are thrilled for that. Um, it, the room is different when all the kids are over there. And so we hope that they're having a great time this morning. I know our team was really thrilled and really excited to be able to open up our elementary ministry to our kids who are enrolled in kindergarten through fifth grade. And uh, as we go along and work through this, all the COVID protocols and everything, we'll be staggering the openings of gradually adding one at a time, those, the lower age groups until we've got everything open. But today, you got to have a first step before you take the second one. And so we start on step one, and it's a great day today. Just a quick reminder, um, we are being really diligent about making sure, diligent is probably not the right word, vigilant is a better word, we're being vigilant about safety. And so when you go to pick up your kids today, I know most of us are on a first name basis, but we are being really vigilant about you got to have that little receipt to pick up your kid. Okay, you got to have a receipt. Don't claim you lost it and you're going to leave them here with us. All right, no. But we are going to make, we really are being vigilant about keeping this a safe environment for your kids. So just if you lost it somewhere this morning, we can print you another copy. But, but please don't be offended or be upset. If you know you've known these people for 10 years and they're still asking you for your receipt, it's just, it's for our safety. Um, we don't want other parents who are new, newer here to see us just letting some people through and then you know, we're not going to do all that. It's just the same thing for everybody. We want to make sure that your children go home with you and not somebody else. Okay, so just be patient with us on that. Um, it's just our security protocol here. They're not being mean. They're just doing their job. Okay, got it. We're good with that. Let's dig into our, our study this morning. We're going to be talking about, um, uh, we're gonna be talking about gospel fluency, which I realized uh, for some of us, those are very familiar words. Others of us are like, that's, I don't really know what those words mean, so let me just define those two words for you before we dig into this. We'll start with the first one, gospel. It's actually not originally an English word. It, it, it comes from a Greek word. Uh, the New Testament of the Bible was originally written in Greek, and so the English copy, the English translations that we read were actually translated from that into English. But if we go back to the manuscripts and we read through and we read through and we find the word gospel. It's found in the New Testament 106 times. And 105 of the 106 times, it's this Greek word, evangelion, which means a good message or good news. So it's, it's good, but it's good message or good news. Now, if you looked at that Greek word and we transliterate means to write it in words that we can pronounce in our language, and we wrote out evangelion, does that look like another English word you might recognize? What do you think? Evangelion, what does that look like? either evangelize or evangelism. And so we get our English word evangelize. Evangelism means, if we go back to that, it means to tell or to put into action a good message or good news. Now, there's lots of gospels. There's gospels of all kinds of historic figures. There's lots of gospels. But what's the gospel? Whose gospel changes the life of a Christian? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we read the phrase good news or gospel in the New Testament, it's all coming 105 of the 106 times and the, 100 and, and the one outliers in another book 
that we can talk about. There's another book of the New Testament. It's not in this passage, but we're talking about the good news of Jesus. Okay, the good news, the good message. Fluency uh, simply means that you are able to express yourself clearly, easily, and articulately. Articulate. That's that's ironic. Articulately. Okay, so apparently I can't. I'm not fluent in pronouncing the word articulately, but is the ability to express yourself easily and articulately. So if we put these phrases together, what are we going after? I want to be able to help you have and inspire you to have a deeper, more personal understanding of the truth of the gospel so that it can tumble out of your mouth from your heart easily and articulately when God opens up opportunities for you to have conversations with other people. And in thinking through how this, uh, thinking way I can illustrate how important this is, it brought me back, the Lord brought me back to two experiences I've had over the last five years where I have been invited to be a guest speaker with a group called KCFA, the Kenyan Christian Fellowship of America. And there's a chapter right here in Baltimore. And because we have people from our congregation here at ECHA who also participate in KCFA, several times I've been invited to go and teach there. And I am not Kenyan. I hope that's not uh, a shock to any of you this morning. I don't descend um, of Kenyan heritage. I am German and very different uh, family tree and genealogy. And um, when I'm invited to come into an environment where it's primarily people who share a Kenyan faith, um, I'm, a, I'm an outsider culturally. I'm an outsider ethnically. I'm not in the majority. I'm in the minority. And that's a good experience for, for me to have. And so I come in and... But in no way does anybody make me feel bad or out of place at that. But I recognize I just there's a little bit there's something different about me than the majority of the people in the room. One of the things I love so much about being part of uh, KC KCFA I want to say KFC and that's a totally different that's a totally different organization. Um, one of the things I love about being part of their gatherings is their time of worship and. Um, you know, they, they have a wonderful worship ministry and they begin to sing and worship and the atmosphere just explodes with the presence of God. I don't know if you've, you know, if that's part of how you experience your worship where you just feel there's just like, there's an electricity in the air when they begin to sing and they begin to worship. And uh, a lot of times they'll start off singing songs that are familiar to me because my heart language is English. And that might be the heart language of many of us, but some of you, English is not your heart language or your first language is not the language you learned first. You learned a language other than English first, and that's your heart language, the one that's most organic to you, the one that tumbles out most easily. Well, inevitably, at some point in the worship service, they switch over from singing in English to singing in their heart language, and I don't share that heart language with them. And so in those moments when they switch over, let me tell you, something even more happens in the atmosphere. It just goes even to another place. And as a, a linguistic outsider, as a cultural outsider sometimes in those environments, I, I observe. Because I can't really participate in singing in some of those songs. And they like, I don't know that language. I'm not fluent in their heart language. But boy, I, I stand there and I just, there's obviously something going on and it speaks to me. And I, I, I know who they're singing about. I know who they're singing to. And I know some of them, some of the, the hosts of those meetings, one of the pastors sits right next to me and he's so sensitive to the fact that he realizes, hey, this guy doesn't probably know our language, didn't grow up in our culture, and we don't want him to feel awkward outside. So a lot of times he'll start singing a song and he'll, he'll reach over and whisper in my ear. He'll be like, okay, this, this is basically the translation. I'll be like, oh, thank you so much. And I still can't sing along. 
but I understand a little bit more about what they're saying. But here's the reality. Sometimes they'll even hand me, like, here's what the words are written out, and it'll be written in a language that I don't know how to read, but I could try and pronounce the words. Even if I could do that, even if I really purpose my heart to say, I really want to be included I want to express myself in the same way that, that they do. I want, to, I want to sing their heart language. Even if I could read those words and sing along, and I practiced and rehearsed it, even memorized, it still wouldn't be quite the same expression as it is from someone who it just bubbles up out of their heart language through their lips to the Lord. And, and there's always a little bit of a gap there. You see, we communicate most easily in our heart language. And for a Christian, it's not English or Swahili or Spanish. For a Christian, our heart language is the language of gospel. That's our heart language. The thing that penetrates our heart most deeply, the thing that should most easily come up and be able to be articulated through our lips just organically with enthusiasm and joy is gospel, the good news, the good message of Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that being comfortable and developing your gospel fluency is not just a matter of you sitting down and memorizing several paragraphs of information and rehearsing it and rehearsing and rehearsing it and then spitting it out. That's kind of my limitation when it comes to being able to worship along with someone else's heart language. If it's not my heart language, it's always going to be one version diminished and removed. And that's not just going to tumble out. There's not going to be a power in that or uh, as much of an authority or credibility. You know, I, I've had those experiences where, um, you know, like even whether it was in a, a Spanish-speaking country or an Armenian-speaking country where I would be part of a missions group that would be in a service where they would be worshiping in their heart language. And it's not like I felt outside that I couldn't be included. It wasn't that I couldn't worship the Lord, but there was always a gap there. And it was always so refreshing. In most of those environments, the worship leader was aware that there would be English-speaking people in the service, and their team would prepare to sing at least maybe a more familiar American worship song, and they'd sing it in our language. And you're standing there, and you want to participate, but you're not really sure the words or how to pronounce them, and you're, you're trying to, to get into God's presence. And then when they switch over to your heart language, it's like, awesome. And then the eyes close and the hands go up, and I, can say, I don't have to think so much about what's going on. It just bubbles up and bubbles out. And it's the same, that's the experience I want you to have with the gospel. That the gospel has so penetrated your heart and your life. That has so transformed you. That has so changed. You know, the gospel is not something we pick up. It's something that picks us up. That's not a, it's not, it's not something that we take on. It's a power that changes us. And the, the, the dream and the hope that I have is God's hope and God's dream for Christians. It's, it's more than just a few sentences of information. God expects that every one of his kids, that every one of his disciples can be ready, can be willing, and is able to express the gospel easily and articulately every time we sense an open door to share it with somebody. Every time that we get into a spiritual conversation with somebody, God wants every one of his kids to be ready and easy to just be fluent in the language of gospel. That's just something that bubbles up and bursts out in a way that is natural to your heart language. How do you get there? The only way, the only right way to get to what we just described is not by just memorizing a bunch of information. The only way you get there is by having a deep, personal, intimate, transformative experience with and understanding of what the gospel really is. 
what the story of Jesus really is and what it tells us. And that's the exact type of experience I want to inspire and create in your heart and in mine as we dig into the Bible today. So if you're not there already, turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at a story about how this really worked. Acts is in the New Testament, and it's the story of the last couple days of Jesus' life on earth, the assignment that he hands out to his followers, the mission that he gives them, and then what happened next when Jesus said, my work here is complete, and now I'm turning over the next leg of Christian history to the church. So we see how the church got started, how it spread. And there's many people that love to say the book of Acts is still kind of being written. Now, not literally. The canon's closed, and we believe that in the end of the book is what we need from the Bible, but that the mission of Acts is still carrying on even today as we gather here. And so it gives us that transition. But before I read these couple verses, I need you to understand about two groups of people who absolutely hated each other. And they, they hated each other over, they were deeply, it was deep racial hatred, deep ethnic hatred, two groups of people that if you trace their history back far enough, they came from the same family tree. But there's a, a huge rift in their, within their race over religion. And both groups came to a place where they said, we think the way that we worship God is the only right way to worship. So much so that they split up geography, they split up territory, they both created their own temples, they both had their own way of worship, and they weren't just peaceful, peaceful coexistence. Each group believed the other group was an absolute offense to God, and each group prayed for the other group to be completely destroyed and ruined and wiped off the face of the earth. And the two groups of people I'm talking about are Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. And there's centuries of this hate that leads up to this passage. And let me tell you about it from the Jewish side. If you would go to a Jewish synagogue back in the time of this story, Every week in the synagogue, there was a, every week in the synagogue, they, the, the Samaritans were publicly cursed. And every day in the synagogue, they made, the Jews made absolutely sure that a daily petition and prayer was made to the Lord, asking God that he would never allow the Samaritans to be partakers of eternal life. That's a deep hate. When you say, dear Lord, Please, if you're just and merciful and righteous, you cannot let this group of people ever have eternal life. Now, I want to be very careful. I'm not trying to be slanderous against a group of people because even in our context, it's not hard until you hear some groups of Christians thinking that they're right, saying, you know, this other group of people who claim to be Christians can't possibly be because they vote this way or they think this way, or they won't endorse this candidate, or they do endorse this candidate. Therefore, let's not include them inside of our little kingdom. That's really not that much different from what the Jews were. And they thought that they were righteous in this. In fact, in their Mishnah, it says, he who eats bread with the Samaritans is to be treated like a person who eats the flesh of pigs. During the time of Jesus, the racial rivalry and the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans got so 
got so twisted that the Samaritans, one of their things they did to try and strike back at the Jews was they actually broke into the Jewish temple and they spread human bones and remains all over the temple so that it was completely defiled and ceremonially unclean to try and shut down their whole system of worship until it could be cleansed. And you think to yourself, how could a group of people who on the one hand, like both the Jews and Samaritans, hung on to the law and the commandments and what was one of the things, love your neighbor as yourself, right? How could they at the same time believe that they needed to love their neighbor as themselves and at the same time pray for another group to be completely wiped off the face of the earth and never enter into eternity? Here's how. Their interpretation of the law was that my neighbor literally means the person of my same belief system who lives next door to me. My neighbor is not a racial outsider. My neighbor is not a Samaritan. They're not my neighbor. Therefore, they're outside of my legal obligation and my spiritual obligation to love, I don't have to love someone who's not my neighbor, which doesn't it make more sense now when Jesus is asking the people who listen to his parables, who was the good neighbor in this story? And he names a Samaritan. Because he's introducing to them that you're interpreting your law incorrectly. It's not a problem with the law. It's a problem with your interpretation of the law. Because you look at the Samaritans as heretics, as outsiders who should be destroyed and treated like less than you, and I'm telling you that they are your neighbor. So you understand why Jesus' message was so controversial. Well, this wasn't all stitched up even a few years after Jesus left and the church was growing, but there was a historic event that happened. The church was growing really strong, but it was confined to one city. There was the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved, and now this church of 3,100 through the first couple chapters of Acts is growing like wildfire all over a city. But it's not spreading out of Jerusalem. But then something changes that looks like really bad news. Do you know what that was? Something broke out against the church there. Do you remember? Persecution. Finally, under the leadership of a man by the name of Saul, who was a very strong Pharisee who hated Christians, and now turned his hate. Christians were in the same category as Samaritans. We shouldn't tolerate them, the good Jews said. These people are heretics and they're lunatics and they're talking about this Jesus being the Messiah, which is blasphemy. They're talking about Jesus and God being the same person and we believe in one true God, so they must be completely out of their minds. And what do we do for people who preach something other than what we do? We pray that they are removed from the face of the earth. And so with righteousness in their minds, Saul and his group of Jewish leaders release a huge persecution against the church where they went house to house killing Christians, torturing them, throwing them in jail, and doing everything they can to wipe them off the face of the earth. And this is happening in Jerusalem. So if you were someone who grew up a Jew, and ethnically and racially you're a Jew, but you now converted to Christianity and you accepted the truth of the gospel, you had a couple choices when this was happening. Number one, you could stay in Jerusalem and likely face your own death, your own torture, your own imprisonment. Two, you could stay in Jerusalem, but kind of take your faith very underground and be secret and private about it. Or three, you could pack up everything that you had, leave your job, leave your family, leave your land that was probably generationally in your family. You could pick it all up and choose to live the life of a refugee. Now, I don't know what it's like to be a refugee. Some of you do. Some of your family members do. Some of your friends do. But you could choose to say, rather than stay here and suffer this, I'm going to just pack up everything for the cause of Christ. Pack up my family. We're going to flee, and we're going to try and start all over somewhere else. Now, I have never faced a crisis like that in my life. Maybe you have. I haven't. I've never been faced with the choice between stay in my house, practice my faith, and die, or pack up my family 
at nighttime, load whatever we can in our car and drive, hopefully get across the border into another country where I don't know the language, I don't know the culture, I don't have any contacts and try and start a new life. If someone asked me and stopped my car during that time and said, what are you doing? What would tumble out of my mouth? It would be a bunch of bad news. Man, my whole city is being, is under persecution. I was forced out of my house. I've lost everything. We're scared. We're frightened. We're terrified. And you would think that all the believers who decided to become refugees, that would be the refrain that would come out of their lips. The Bible tells a different story. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. But the believers who were scattered, these people are talking about, what did they talk about? What did they preach? They preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Wow. They had a choice between spreading bad news or good news. And you know what they chose? Good news. All about perspective, isn't it? Are you a better carrier of bad news or good news? Which are you more eager to share? I don't care what you're facing today. I don't care what's going on in your life right now. I don't care what you're afraid of, what you're wrestling with. You have a choice between spreading the bad news or the good news about Jesus Christ. And every conversation, in fact, they had a unique window of opportunity. As bad as things looked like through our lens, the believers who were scattered didn't shut up. And what the enemy intended to do was to stamp out Christianity. And all he did was just, start, he, it was just like, critical mass and there was an explosion he he he, he sent it, the enemies attempt to snuff out christianity just blew oxygen in it that sent them all over the world and the believers didn't leave out of fear they left and they preached the good news about jesus wherever they went now it zeroes in luke zeroes in on philip a jew who had converted to christianity because of the gospel of jesus philip for example went to the city of samaria why in the world would a man who for every reason and for probably his entire life hated the Samaritans and knew that even talking to them, breaking bread with them, touching them would make him ceremonially unclean among his own people. He would be a pariah among his own. First place he goes, Samaria. And what does he do there? Tells people about the Messiah. He starts doing ministry right away. And he didn't just tell stories. He didn't just say, hey, you got, here's another 10 reasons why you guys are wrong. You know, have you ever sat down with someone who believes differently than you do and you think the way I need to convert them is show them everything about their life that is wrong and how they need to fix it? He just tells them about the Messiah. And now here's the Samaritans thinking, hey, we got one guy here from the wrong side of town. Now's our chance to really make an example out of him. And you know how they respond to the gospel? They listened intently because they were eager to hear his message. I want to tell you something. If you don't know God, some of you have to think back a ways. Some of you are there now. If you don't know God personally, I believe deep in your heart there's an eagerness to at least know what he's about, to know what he thinks about you. There's a curiosity there. And the Bible says the content of what Philip said was to talk about the Messiah. Verse 4 says that he preached the good news, the gospel, the evangelion. That's what he was talking about that they were so eager to listen to. But he didn't just talk. Do you see that? They were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Because they understood, look, lots of people might come in here and talk the talk, but does this guy walk the walk? 
Is he just a bunch of words? Is he just about trying to add to their number? Or is there a credibility about what he says backed up by what he does? Well, let's look at what type of miraculous signs God used him to do. Let's keep reading. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was what? Great joy in that city. A whole city where there were zero Christians now is being turned right side up and it says there's joy across the whole city. And what started it? One person who was a racial outsider who, who historically hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans historically hated Philip and what he believed about. But he comes to town. He tells them about Jesus and he starts meeting their practical needs by delivering to them power from God through whom God had given him access to power. It wasn't just his words. It was words reinforced by real actions that met real needs that spread joy throughout the city. Now, that's important. It says the whole city experienced great joy. Some people who heard the message got saved. They raised their hand. I was thankful to hear from Pastor Zach last week in youth service. Four young people committed their life to Jesus Christ. They were among the people who converted. But there were other people who heard the gospel who said, I don't necessarily believe what Philip is peddling. I'm not ready to buy in yet. But you know what? I don't want Christians to leave town. We want them here. I don't believe everything they believe, but I don't want them to leave our city because look at all the good they're doing. Now that is when you'll have great joy in White Marsh. That's when you'll have great joy in Perry Hall and Parkville. That's when you'll have great joy in Baltimore. When even the people who say, I don't believe what the church believes about Jesus, but man, I'm so glad those Christians are here. I'm so glad they're here because they help the poor. They're stable. They're steady. They're generous. They get involved. They roll up their sleeves. They're loving, compassionate people who the net benefit of our city is increased because they're here. I might not even attend that church, but I want that church to be here. Oh, if our church could earn that reputation around here. Not just echo the church. The church. Then he gives us a corollary here that I can't get into today because of time. But a man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. So it says even before Philip came around, there was a speaker in town that had everybody's ear. His name was Simon. He could do magic. He could do miraculous signs. In other words, he could walk the walk, or what looked like the walk, but he didn't talk the talk. And we find out later on in his life that even when Simon tried to just go through the motions, pray the right prayer, get baptized in water, that there was still deep wickedness and moral confusion in his life because he was just going through the motions. The gospel really never penetrated his heart. It was like me in a service trying to just learn the other language and repeat it so I could fit in, but it hadn't taken hold of my heart. But now it says, when Philip comes around, now the people believed Philip's message of what? The good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So we already, you say, well, I wish I could just get a copy of his teaching notes. If I could just memorize his speech, I could do the same thing. Well, the Bible tells you what he talked about. Two things, the good news concerning the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. That was his content. As a result, many men and women were baptized. So what do we do with this today? I want to give you what I think and I think what the Bible shows is pretty clearly were his teaching notes. What was the gospel? It says, it says, here's what he talked about. 
Isn't it interesting that we don't get paragraphs and paragraphs of his message written out? It tells us everything we need to know. Because I, th I think God in his wisdom didn't want us to just have a script that we memorize and try and repeat. He had a deep personal understanding of who Jesus was and the good news of the gospel of Jesus, what that meant to him and what that meant to others. It had transformed his life so much so that he wasn't just a salesman who was trying to hawk a product to people. He had been deeply transformed. He was living out of that. Those words tumbled out of his lips and were reinforced by his actions that made him a very uniquely credible and powerful person. And here's the thing. He was a total lay person. This Philip, he didn't have the 40-day intensive training with Jesus and other people. It was completely grassroots movement. He didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to go to Samaria. He was scattered. There was no strategy. There was no team meeting. They did not take an evangelism plan to the denominational leaders. This is a completely grassroots, organic movement of God by someone who just says, I've been changed by the gospel, and these people I used to hate, I now want to see saved, and I will go myself and show them my life and tell them of Jesus because every one of them should not be written out of eternal life. Every one of them deserves a right to say yes or say no to Jesus. Okay? Well, Pastor, could you put it all in a nutshell? No, but I can put it in three. We've got three acorns here today. These came from a gigantic paper mache acorn tree. These were handcrafted in-house by our resident creative guru, Javi Lamendez. I made the mistake of asking her earlier this week, I was like, I have this idea for how I want to illustrate the three nutshells that I want to give people on Sunday. If you could put the gospel in a nutshell, I'll put it in three. Um, I would love if you could find on Amazon or Michael's or one of these craft places, I'm not going to go in there because just the fear of me walking into Michael's not knowing what aisle something is in terrifies me to my core. Um, and she's like, well, I've looked around and I can't find them, but I think I could make some. And I'm thinking, how do you, you know, my confidence level in any human being being able to make realistic looking acorns that open and close and can fit my props inside. She came up with this. And this is so much better than anything. I mean, look at these things. I mean, these are, these are amazing. We've decided that all the time and love she invested, we're going to have to use these for a lot of different things now. But um, inside of every one of these nutshells is a visual example that I hope will help make these ideas sticky and stick with you. Um, so if I had to put the gospel in the nutshell, the first one, the first one that I put here is I think that this is really embodies Philip's teaching. There's something inside of here that I'm looking around the room and looking at, I think the general age, most of you will know what this is. We had young people in the first service that didn't know what this was. Um, I'm going to close this here, put this here. Um, do you know what this is? Okay, you know. Yeah, it's a newspaper. I don't know if 20 years from now we'll know what these are anymore. My nine-year-old, uh, two years ago, so he would have been a seven-year-old, we were flying home from Florida from a family vacation, and we got to the airport at two, and the flight got delayed six times, and it finally left at 11. So I was there with my, you know, my, well, I think at the time it was, they were six and one. Um, not a great experience to be in an airport with little kids for that many hours without knowing answers to all their questions, but um, Chase loves sports and loves baseball, so we went to a newsstand there and bought uh, the last issue they had of the USA Today Baseball Weekly. And if you've ever picked that up before, that thing is loaded with every box score, every stat, every detail from the last few days of baseball. He sat in absolute awe of this newspaper for a good solid two hours, reading every line and every stat on every page. And about halfway through, he taps me on the arm and goes, Dad. Do they make one of these like every day? I'm like, yeah. He's like, whoa. He's like, what are these called again? 
newspapers. <laughs> and this internet age, you know, and digital everything, he was like, this is amazing that they do this. Why am I giving this to you? Gospel nutshell number one, the gospel is news about Jesus has done, about what Jesus has done. It's not primarily advice about how to live. The gospel is news. You know there's a difference between news and advice? There's a big difference between news and advice. Generally speaking, every other major world religion is not news about what has been done. It's advice on how to live. Basically, every other major world religion says, here's a prophet or here's an important man or woman who's come to tell you everything you need to do to connect to God. Here's, here's the law. Do what it says and don't do what it forbids. And if you do all these things, you can connect to God. Or uh, here's a prophet who was out in the woods and, some, you know, and, and something came down and you know, gave him some extra information about how you need to change your life. Or here's the five pillars. These are the things you need to do to connect to God. Only Christianity says, uh, here is a man who came to us and said, I'm God and I'm here to connect to you. And all these other world religions, they say, you know, here's a man who told us how to connect to God. Christianity says, we're going to introduce you to the man who came to us and said, here's how I want to connect to you. Christianity is not about, which basically means every other world religion boils down to advice. Here's the things we advise you to do to start, to stop, to continue, to discontinue, to change, to keep doing. Here's all the things you need to do with your life in order to be accepted by God. And it boils down to advice. Only the gospel says, it's not about advice. It's not even about you. The gospel is news about what's already been done. It's already happened. And it was hot off the press, man, when Philip was in Samaria. They could have investigated and corroborated all these details. Most of the people who were there and were part of Jesus' crucifixion saw the resurrection. They were alive. You could interview them. You could cross-examine them. But the gospel is primarily news. It's news about the person, the work of Jesus Christ. It's news about what's been done, not advice about what you must do now. And it's critical when you're thinking about what it means to be a Christian. It's critical when you're talking to other people about what Christianity means that you don't simply say, well, I'm a Christian, uh, and I know that I'm a Christian because, well, I go to church two times a month. And then months where Easter and Christmas, I'll maybe go three times. I serve in a ministry. I've taken up a cause. I'm generous with my money. I, I'm a Christian because I read my Bible. I'm a Christian because I say prayers. 87% of Americans pray, and I think less than 50%, or, and, but yet 60% believe in a God. So figure that one out. Most people pray. Even the demons know who Jesus is, and they tremble. It's not just about saying, I'm a Christian because I've done some things differently in my life. Philip didn't preach advice. Philip didn't preach clean up your language. Philip didn't preach start being generous. Philip didn't even preach if you go and start loving racial outsiders and then you'll become a Christian. Philip preached about the Messiah, the kingdom of God, and Jesus. He didn't go in there and say, here's the things you need to do. He said, let me tell you the true story of what's already been done for you. That's a whole different way of receiving because when you start telling me that I have to do a whole bunch of different stuff to be loved and accepted, I get depressed. I get stressed out. I feel pressure to perform because preaching the other way and thinking the other way about salvation says it's all on you to save yourself. And the way you save yourself is by good behavior. 
And I got news for you, friend. Even the best behavior isn't enough to save us. Oh, that's depressing. It could be if there wasn't a better solution. The solution to you being saved is not your behavior. It's called grace. It's called grace. The Bible is news about what Jesus did. It's not, it's not advice about what you need to do. What takes all of the burden off of our guilt? That's what people really want. That's what I wanted. I didn't want to feel more guilty. I wanted to feel less guilty in my life. What erases all regrets from your past? What will ease the burden of you feeling like you have to constantly prove yourself to everybody? What deals with all of your anxiety and uncertainty about your life and your future? What takes away all those burdens? It's not advice, it's news. It's not advice, it's news. It's the news that you have been freely justified by His grace and that you've been accepted by Jesus completely. That's news. That's not something you have to earn. That's something that's been done. Something that's been done. You see, the gospel, it's news about Jesus. It's not about you. It's Jesus' story. It's not your story. It's his story. It's simply, it's not about you. It's not all you have to do. It's not all you have to be. It's simply Jesus and all he's done for you. The gospel is, what's the first one? His gospel, the gospel is, it's news about what Jesus has done not just primarily advice on how to live. Let me quickly go through the rest of these. Uh, the second one is this one. I've got to be careful with this one. This is the one of most value. Okay, we'll pull this out. Second nutshell. Let's see. Be really careful. We've got our security team here today. You know what this is? You see this? What's that? It's not a trick question. You know what the, Ladies, you know what this is? It's your best friend, right? Yeah. Diamond. I opened this up this morning, and I was like, Chase, my nine-year-old was in the office. I'm carefully lifting. He goes, oh, is that real? I was like, the, the sermon budget does not have enough in it. <laughs> this is not real. This was from a very reputable diamond seller called Amazon. And I, I got it for $9, so that tells you right away. The second nutshell has to do with this, and before we put it up, let me tell you why. Now, this is a fake. Now, most of you ladies, if, you're, if your husband or you, the person you want to be your husband would show up with a, ring, with a diamond this size, you'd be pretty okay with, you know what, yep, yep, that'll work. That will work. It's huge. But you know, if you take, ladies, if you take that diamond that you have and you put it under a powerful microscope, you know what you're going to see in there? What are you going to see? I heard a couple of you say it quietly. You're going to see some flaws not the one my husband bought me. Okay. We'll let you live in ignorance. All right. But the truth of the matter, this is like the most valuable stone you can buy. And we use it to express deep love and affection and appreciation for people. And they're very strong and powerful. They cut glass and everything else. But the truth of the matter is, at least for most of us with the budget that I had when I was going to Bible college and trying to buy an engagement ring for you know, my wife, and they said, well, two months income, six months income. I was like, well, what is six times zero? What is two times zero? You know, we're going to have to work on something here, right? I was all proud of the best diamond that I could buy. And they're like, okay, but now before you buy this, let, me, let us give you a, a gemologist report. And, and, you know, this, and it had this enlarged picture of the thing, of the diamond, and it, it had all marks where all the flaws were. I was like, this makes me feel terrible. I'm going to spend how much for something that has all these flaws in it? 
Here's the thing, though. How do you think my wife responded, though, when I offered her that flawed diamond? Buddy, she took that thing. She put it on her finger. She said yes, and then she ran off to call everybody, right? Talk, talk, you know, back when you didn't have text messaging, you had to talk on the phone. Here's the thing I learned about diamonds a long time ago. It can be two things simultaneously. It can be completely flawed and completely loved at the same time. Are you with me? This thing can be completely flawed. It can have all kinds of imperfections all through the whole thing. And yet, to the pair of eyes that matter, it can be a priceless treasure at the same time. What does this tell us about the gospel? Well, the gospel tells us this. This is the second nutshell. The gospel says, I'm two things simultaneously. I am more wicked and flawed than I ever dared believe. Pastor, I don't like that part. That's not my favorite part either. But have you ever put your own heart under a microscope and really got honest with yourself about what's really in there? We're a mess. The Bible tells us every single one of us is hardwired for sin. Sin means to do the things that God forbids or to not to do the things that God commands. The Bible says every human being is hardwired for sin. We are all equally morally capable of every imaginable sin. And you might say, well, I would never do what this person does. Sure you could. You might not have been put in that environment. You might not have faced that temptation. It might not have been drawn out of you, but you are no less capable of that person of that sin. Every, so it levels the playing field for those of us that you know, lean a little bit to the left in our politics. We can't just say, well, it's all those elite, you know, those, those, the, the elitists in the world. It's, it's their problem that society is the way that it is. No, 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 no. If you lean a little bit to the right, you just can't say, well, it's all the, it's all the masses of sinful the citizens and, and, and the people lower in society. It's all the, no, 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 no. It levels the playing field. The Bible, the gospel says every one of us is wicked and flawed through and through and through. And because of that, it's destroyed our relationship with ourself. We look at ourselves differently. We live with shame. We live with guilt. We look at other people differently. We blame shift. We look down at people we think we're better than, and we, and, we, and we make ourselves feel worse by looking at people we think are better than us. It's ruined our relationship with creation and nature. It's ruined our relationship with God. And we have to come to terms with that because if you don't, you're going to live an entitled life. God owes me heaven. I'm my own leader. I'm better than, look at all these other people I'm better than. And because I'm better than them, I have a better resume and God would like me more than them. You have to understand, the Bible says you put yourself under a microscope, you're pretty wicked and flawed. Where you buy a cheap knockoff on Amazon, I can see the flaws without a microscope. There's donut crumbs on this for my son's breakfast. There's lint. There's fingerprints all over it. You don't have to put me under a microscope to see my flaws. Hello? Okay. That was a strong amen on that one. Um, do we have to put you under a microscope? No. Look, we know we're flawed. Don't we all go around? What's the constant refrain? Well, I, of course I did this wrong because nobody's perfect. I'm only human. Yes! And that's a problem. Nobody's perfect. And we're human. It means we're flawed. Here's the beautiful part, though. That statement doesn't exist without another part to it. 
gospel says I'm more wicked and flawed than I dared believe, but it's simultaneously I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared imagine. God knows your flaws, and yet he loves you and accepts you in a way that is higher and deeper and greater than you could ever imagine. You see the flaws. He sees the diamond. And he says, you are more valuable and loved to me. I know your flaws, but I love you and accept you. And you say, I don't deserve that. Nobody deserves that. I should have to earn that kind of love. And the Bible says you can't, but there's another option. The other option is called grace. He says, I don't want what I deserve. I want better than I deserve. Well, that's called grace, and that's what God gives. He gives grace. And so when you're thinking about what the gospel means to you and to me, you have to say, it it says I'm more wicked and flawed than I ever dared believe, but I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared imagine. Let me show you what that looks like. It looks like what Philip does here. He's a Jew who hated Samaritans, who now has an experience with the gospel and decides, I'm going to roll into town and start breaking bread and touching these people, showing them how much I love them. What changed? What changes a person's heart like that? Did he go to a conference? Did he read a book? Did he go to a TED Talk? Did he get up in the mirror one morning and just, he had three energy drinks and had a workout, he was feeling really good, he was going to tackle the world today, get the whole to-do list done? No, 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 no. One thing changed in his life. He had an experience with Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, and it changed him from a man who used to hate to a man who loved. He no longer could look down at the Samaritans because he had already, the gospel said, no, 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 you're no better than they are. People you used to hate, people you used to write off, when the gospel really changes your heart, you can't do that anymore. And you won't do that anymore if the gospel has really gotten hold of your heart. People, you said, they can't possibly be part of my kingdom. You say, how dare I say that? I'm I'm in by grace, not by political party. I'm in by grace, not by performance. I'm in by grace, not by church attendance. I'm here not because of anything I did. I'm here because God welcomes me in, and it's the same welcome he extends to everybody else. Because we're all wicked and flawed, but simultaneously loved. Accepted. So when you think about that second nutshell of the diamond, remember, or second nutshell of the gospel, remember a diamond. It's wicked and it's flawed, but simultaneously it is loved and accepted. Last thing I got to give you because we got to close. This is probably the easiest one to recognize. Well, they're all pretty easy. This one you know, right? It's the symbol of a cross, right? Not a trick question. The symbol of a cross. Okay. And what I want you to remember about this is, is, is just. Every time I see a cross, here's what I think. I should have hung here, but I don't have to. Jesus is my substitute. Gospel nutshell number three. Let me just give this to you. When you, think, when you see a cross, I just want you to think about this. It reminds us, Jesus lived a life that I should have lived, but I didn't. Jesus died the death I should die. Because I deserved it, not him. But in order to give me a better possibility, Jesus became my substitute and your substitute. He stood in and paid the penalty for the crimes that I committed that he didn't. The Bible says that there's right and wrong and there's God's laws. You obey them, you'll live. You disobey them, you die. The Bible tells you straight up. I mean, our law tells you if you speed and you get pulled over, here's the penalty. We don't always like that. When the Bible says if someone comes and kills someone in your family, there's a penalty. And you say, good, justice. The Bible says if someone steals from you, or our law says you you steal from somebody, there's a law and there's a penalty. Someone assaults you, there's laws and there's penalties. And we say these are good things. We want these things. There is right and wrong. 
and there should be a penal system, a penalty system that punishes people for doing wrong and doesn't punish people for doing right. Now, we like that until it applies to eternity. And here's what the Bible tells us. You and I have all committed a <laughs> committed crimes against the Lord in the form of our sins. And every single, the Bible says very clearly, Romans chapter 6, the penalty for each sin is death. I said this before, let me say it again. That means like, hey, if you've sinned a couple times a day for the last 10 years, how many death penalties do you owe? More than you have lives to pay them. And that can leave us really depressed and discouraged. I know people who live in guilt and shame because they're still trying to penalize themselves for stuff they've done wrong in their life. And they feel like no matter how much they penalize themselves, they don't get any relief. They don't feel any better. It's just a cycle of guilt and shame. And they're stuck there. But the gospel comes along and reminds us that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and that I should have lived. He came to earth. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way you and I are tempted. Faced every kind of temptation. Every kind. Every possible way you could disobey God, he was tempted. Every possible opportunity he had to shortchange things and take shortcuts, and slide, he had them all. And yet every single time he obeyed God, acted righteously. No human being in history can say that, only Jesus. What you and I deserve is to be hung on a cross. We deserve death. Gospel Nutshell 3 says, Jesus lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I deserve to die. He became my substitute. And now I can be accepted by God based on Jesus' resume on the cross, based on his resurrection from the dead, based on his resume, not my own. You understand the only resume that God can accept is Jesus' resume. And if you approach God and you say, you know what? Here's my resume. I've lived a good life. I've been a good person. I've been a good old boy, good old girl. I've been nice to people. I've been generous. You're handing him a resume. And God says, I don't accept that one. Because there's all these other, I can't. There's sin all over this. Even you submitting your resume of all your good works, I can't accept because now it turns out you weren't doing that for me. You were doing that for you. And all your motives are suspect. Hands it back. But here's what I know and I'm confident of. When I stand before the Lord in judgment day, I'm not going to stand by myself. Jesus will call me forward and say, Father, here's Phil. Here is my resume. I'm in him, and he's in me. We're together. We're one. We're together. And God says, son, of course. Of course I accept you, and anybody who comes to me in your name is a friend of yours, is a friend of mine. Come on in. When I look at the cross, it reminds me that Jesus is my substitute, and I don't have to present a resume to the Lord. Jesus is my resume. I'm in him. He's in me. Those are the three nutshells. That's what Philip told the Samaritans. He simply told them that, I have news to tell you about Jesus. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. He's our Messiah. It's not about us following our laws anymore. It's not about whether your law is right or our law is right. Jesus came and he dissolved. Think of the racial barriers that came down here. Do you see how the gospel healed racial barriers, not because they, they, they hashed out some formal agreement, 
they recognize that on the cross, Jesus not only provided healing for every sickness and disease, he, he, he provided healing for every broken people group in the face of the earth forever. He achieved that already. And when they, through the power of the gospel, really had their lives turned right side up, man, look at, the, look at all those centuries of hatred and distance that just melted away through the power of the gospel. Look at that. I want to tell you something. God is still up to the very same things. He wants to do the very same things for us today. Jesus lowered himself in order that he could lift us up. He set aside his power in order to give you and I more power than we could ever imagine. He gave away his riches in order that you and I could become rich. It's this massive reversal of values. When you lower yourself and humble yourself and say, I recognize I'm weak and faulty and flawed and broken, but I come to you, Jesus, just as I am, and I just receive your love and your acceptance for me. I turn away from this new life, and I invite you to be my leader. He lifts you up and changes your status right away. You go from an outsider to a son or a daughter just like that, just like that. When we surrender our power, I have the power to live life as I please, and you give that away and you think, oh, it's making me vulnerable. Uh-uh, Jesus now will re replace that and supply you with more power than you could ever dream. And you'll become a person who gives your whole self away. You will have, one of the marks of Christianity is, you don't look like you put, you don't live like you own and possess anything. My time, my life, my gifts, my talent, my money, my opportunities, they're all gifts that God gave me to give away. And we don't panic by giving it all away because we know we're already more wealthy than our imaginations can begin to process. That's the life. That's the power of the gospel. That is the message Philip carried to Samaritans, the most unlikely ambassador. An entire city said, yes, yes. Yes, this is what we want. This is what we need. And even those who weren't ready to buy in said, I might not agree, but man, that is a good thing. And I'm glad that it's here because look at what it's producing all over our city. That's why I want to be part of. That's the mission of our church. That's the mission of every church. My question for you is, have you had an experience with Jesus for yourself? Have you thought about what the gospel says about you, about your life, about Jesus? Don't you want to be relieved from the guilt that you live with, from the anxiety that you have, from the purposelessness that you don't, that, you, that, that pressure of feeling to have to measure up? The only way to that pathway is through Jesus. That's the only way. That's the only way. But the way is wide open to you. And you, oh, I don't deserve that. And of course you don't. None of us deserve it. That's why we love grace. Grace means we get better than what we deserve. That's what I'm all, I'm all for that. It's not fair. Exactly. You don't want life to be fair. Fair means we all get what we deserve. I don't want what I deserve. I don't know about you. I don't want what I deserve. But man, when you recognize you're the recipient of grace, that you didn't earn it, that it's a gift to you, you treat the giver much different. It's not an exchange. It's just a gift. It's just a gift. Let me pray over you. Keith, team, will you come back? Let's bow our head. Let's close our eyes. Let's just lock in for just a moment. Just a moment. I want to ask you, are you ready for Jesus to completely change your life? Are you ready to completely lay it down? And humble yourself. And just surrender to Jesus. Are you ready for that today? Do you want to say yes to that today? Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of it. The Holy Spirit's drawing you right now. All you have to do is say yes to Him. And if you're ready for that, all of heaven is ready for you to say yes. I've been waiting on this moment. It's not a coincidence that you're hearing this right now on this date at this time. It's not coincidence. It's not random chance. This is the divinely orchestrated tapestry of the Holy Spirit in the timeline of your life. Are you ready to let the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the news of the gospel, 
completely transform your life and open up an eternal relationship with your creator? If the answer is yes to that, I invite you, all you have to do is bring a prayer in your heart language through your lips to God's ear. Let me guide you in how you can pray right now. You can pray, dear Jesus, I admit I am a sinner. I am more wicked and flawed than I really want to come to terms with, but I recognize that. I, I need to be forgiven. I cannot repair myself. I confess my belief in you, Jesus. Specifically, I do believe the news that's been carried to me through the Bible, through your apostles, through the eyewitnesses who were there firsthand. I believe you lived the life I should have lived, but I haven't. I'm thankful and I believe that you also died a death that you didn't deserve, but I did, so that you could be my substitute. I also believe by faith and through the eyewitnesses and the stubborn historical facts that you rose from the dead, which was proof in the receipt that God accepted the payment you made as my substitute on my behalf so that now, God, I can come to you on your son's resume, not on my own performance. You are the Lord Jesus. That's a fact. But today I'm choosing to line up my life with that fact and to acknowledge your lordship, that you're God and I'm not. And I will stop fighting you for your job. I humble myself and I invite you, come live inside of me, Holy Spirit. Come change my heart. Make me new. And I look forward to following you all the days of my life. Heavenly Father, may we be men and women, sons and daughters, who demonstrate lives deeply changed by the truth of the gospel. May the gospel become our heart language. Will you help us be more fluent in putting words and actions to the deep truth that we've been changed only through Jesus, all for your glory. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Echo Community Church Podcast. If today's message impacted you, or you want to talk about one of the topics we discussed today, email us at info at echochurchmd.com. We would love to connect with you online. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube by searching our church name, Echo Community Church. Send a message or leave a comment to at Echo Community Church, and let's continue the conversation. And if you live locally in Baltimore County, Maryland, we invite you to our Sunday worship experience. You can find out more on our website at echochurchonline.com.